1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. Today, I'm joined by Professor Paul Robinson, who is a professor of history of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. We'll be discussing his new book, Russian Conservatism, published by Cornell University Press as part of the Northern Illinois University Press's series on Slavic, East European, and Eurasian studies. This is a deep dive into more than two centuries of conservative thought in Russia, viewed from aspects of its cultural, political, and socioeconomic impact upon each era. I found the book challenged many of my set views on a wide range of issues, so I'm delighted that Professor Robinson can join us today for a a little bit of a deeper dive into the subject. Uh, Professor Robinson, welcome to the network.
2: Welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Can we begin by telling listeners a little bit more about your own background and your many areas of interest?
2: Well, I'm a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa, um, but a historian by training, which means I have a sort of crossover between history and current and affairs and, and, and policy issues. I um, first studied Russian back in the early 1980s. I was a student in the Soviet Union in 1987 for a few months. I was been a, an army officer, and then I uh, got married, I left, I I did a doctorate at Oxford and and became an academic, and and I write about um, Russian-Soviet history, but also current affairs and and some other things, um, defense policy, international affairs generally.
1: Right. And how how did you come to the actual subject of Russian conservatism?
2: Well, the simple answer would be that uh, I was asked to write this book, but it was one of those ideas where, as soon as the suggestion was given to me, it was obvious it, it was a good one. And um, the reason it, it, I was asked to do this was I, I read a couple of articles in uh, political magazines, The Spectator in the UK and, and the American Conservatives in the United States, which, which dealt with issues of, of Vladimir Putin's political ideology. And I came to that by very sort of roundabout way, because for my doctoral thesis and, and first book, I studied Russian military emigres in the interwar period, and as part of that, I, I studied what they believed and, and who they read. And, and I'd come across certain um, emigre philosophers such as Piotr Struve and, and Ivan Ilyin, and, and uh, read um, a little bit about them. And, and, and actually I then wrote an article about Ilyin for an academic journal. And when Putin came to power, it struck me that there were certain sort of similarities or a viewpoint, not because Putin's influenced by philosophers because I don't think he is, but simply because historical circumstances have, have produce certain similar ways of of looking at things. So I wrote these these articles for the, you know, essentially popular journals and they weren't very developed. I was sort of throwing out ideas without having done deeper research onto it, but I'd always thought maybe I should do deeper research on it. So when someone asked me to do that, I thought, what a great idea.
1: Well, it was a great idea. It was a fantastic book. Let's make sure that we understand exactly what uh, is meant by conservatism. You spend a good deal of the, the first chapter in the book sort of setting that stage. And I wonder if you could do the same for our listeners.
2: Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do because political philosophers who've tried to define conservatism have really failed to do so in a very um, agreed manner. There's many definitions of it and they don't always um, cohere. But essentially what I've come down um with is the idea that it's a philosophy of organic change. That's to say, it's not about conserving the status quo and not moving. In fact, if you look at Russian conservatives, you find that generally they have tended to be rather dissatisfied with the status quo. So conservatives actually, on the whole, do want change, they they do want progress, but they're very insistent that it be of a certain sort, which is of an organic sort, that's to say, that it should be it should cohere in some way with your national traditions, with your history, with your values, your religion, rather than the change which follows some model, abstract, theoretical model of communism, liberalism, socialism, whatever, which has often been taken from outside, from, from, from the West normally, right, and simply plunked down in your country without any respect of your existing uh, concrete conditions. So conservatives, therefore, um, would reject such an approach and say, uh, particularly in Russia's case, we'd say you know, Russia must develop in its own way, according to its own traditions, its own concrete conditions, and shouldn't just take everything from the West and put it down here without respect for who we are and who we were.
1: And within the, within the book, um, you make a distinction between uh, sort of the conservatism that, te- that takes root in Russia and its Western counterpart. And I wonder if you could contrast those two for us.
2: Yeah, so- the i mean there are certain similarities between russian conservatism and western conservatism and, and they sort of come into being at, at roughly at the same time because they are they are both to some degree responses to uh, the enlightenment sense of sort of rationalism and that you can rationally determine um, how you should construct society and then just rebuild it according to pure abstract reason so they're both a, a response to that and particularly to the French Revolution, which is seen as an attempt to sort of put this idea into practice. But beyond that, there's a difference between Russian conservatism and, and Western European conservatism in that if you're thinking about organic change, in Russia's case, you need to think about what does that mean. It means, well, it means Russian, but then national identity is always defined in terms of an other. So it's like, Probably not. So if, you, if you're going to say we're going to have an organic change, that means well, it's not yes. change based on somebody else, and therefore it's not change best based on Western examples. So that means that Russian conservatism inevitably has some sort of anti-Western component in it. Now I, sh- I should clarify that a little bit. It's anti-Westernism as opposed to anti-Western. That's to say you can be a Russian conservative and, and greatly admire the West and, and think that it, it it's great in, in, in many ways, but you simply don't believe that what works in the West will work here. So, conservatism isn't necessarily anti-Western. What it is, is against the idea that you could take everything in the West and put it down in Russia. So, it's therefore against this idea of Westernism or Westernization.
1: And do you
2: And therefore, that differentiates uh-huh. it.
1: And do you feel that this all takes is, is sort of responding to the, the sweeping changes of Peter the Great or does it start earlier than that?
2: I mean, there are discussions about when Russian conservatism starts and, and various historians disagree on that. I mean, in my book, I sort of describe what happens in the 18th century as proto-conservatism. So conservatism is beginning to, to, to formulate itself in the 18th century as a response to the westernization which follows Peter the Great. But to actually turn into a sort of formal political ideology, you've got to have an intellectual class. You've got to have a sufficient number of people who are reading books, who are versed in philosophy and so on. And that doesn't really begin to come about till around 1800. And of course, at that point, then you have, you have the French Revolution, Napoleon's invasion of France, um, and also a response to the which had happened among the, the Russian upper class in the 18th century. And it's really in response to all those things that, you know, around 1800 that you really begin to get something we could call Russian conservatism coming into being, albeit incompletely at first. I see.
1: There are a fascinating group of sort of cast of characters in your book, um, almost too many to go into. And I I suppose we could do an hour-long discussion of each of them. Um, But I think that the group that emerges as, as most key uh, particularly in the early part of the book, are the Slavophiles. Um, can you introduce us to to that group and talk about the the arc of their activity and development as as in kind of in the vanguard of Russian conservatism, I, I think one could say?
2: Yes. Uh, the Slavophiles are, are extremely important, even if during their own lifetime they were just a very small group of people who weren't even allowed to be published. So if their influence was more sort of beyond their life, than, than, than during it. But um, these were a small group of, of noblemen, mostly from Moscow, which is itself significant because they weren't from St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg being the sort of center of westernization. They, 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 they were Muscovites. And um, they were influenced by Russian orthodoxy, but also by Western, especially German, romantic philosophy. And this idea that, which also come from Hegel, that a country if it's to be a so-called historic country as opposed to a non-historic country, it has to leave some mark in the world. It, it, it has to make some contribution to universal progress. And you can't do that just by copying other people. If all you do is copy, then you can't make an original contribution. And the Slavophiles felt that Russia, as a state which was a great country, it, it had recently, you know, its armies had gone as far as Paris, hadn't yet made any contribution to world culture so we thought well you know, this is something we need to do but we can't do it by just copying we need to find what is valuable about our own russian past and our own russian culture and our russian society and nurture that and build it up and then once we've done that then we can give this to the to the rest of the world and they saw um, really essentially two principles that they came up with as, as being the contribution Russia could make to, to world culture, both of which were associated to, to a large degree with uh, orthodox thinking. The one, first one was a um, wholeness of spirit, you might call it. This is the idea that you can't view the world just in terms of, of reason. You need to combine, you know, reason and and, and Faith and history and, and, and tradition and all these things into an integral whole, and they felt that this was something uh, Russians had retained, whereas the West had become overly rationalistic and materialistic. And therefore, if Russia could preserve and nurture this, it could bring it back to the West and, and, and save it essentially from itself. The second idea was the idea of, of subordinate, which is really hard to translate, but is essentially sort of spirit of collective decision-making in, in which you share the same culture and values, and as a result of that, you are able to collectively come to a consensus which everybody then freely subordinates themselves to because they share the same underlying values. And this is contrasted with you know, the sort of Western democratic model where you, you take votes, and by taking votes, you then divide up into competing groups. Okay, and subordinates was associated with the, the Peasant Commune, and, and Slavophiles saw it as, a, as something which could be a guiding principle for the establishment of Russian society as a whole, and ideally, you know, of, of European society as a whole. If, if they could build Russia on this basis, Russia would become a, a, a shining model, which others would then want to
1: And did they succeed?
2: No, <laughs> not really. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of idealism here. Uh, Slavify, the Slavophiles, have been called, you know, um, conservative utopians. However, their, their thought did have um, a very great influence on future generations, not only of conservatives but also of, of, of you know radicals and populists and other people who who, who took elements of, of their thought and um, uh, adapted them for future purposes.
1: I don't want to jump around too much because your book is um, organized very neatly chronologically. But are, are there any uh, hint of the Slavophile uh, ideas still extant in modern Russian conservatism?
2: Oh yes, I mean because because the, the Slavophiles. We're reacting against uh, the so-called westernizers, the Westernizers uh, were a group who, who thought, well the way Russia will make a contribution to the world is by you know, developing a modern society which can only do really by, by copying everything, the most progressive ideas you can from the West. And so you, you, you end up with a uh, competition between those who think that the way Russia has to progress is through um, adopting the most up-to-date Western ideas and transplanting them to Russia. And those who believe that Russia is distinctive it's different and therefore have to develop in its own distinct way and this, this fundamental idea remains central to Russian conservatism to this day and is what would be the, the diff, would essentially define the essential difference between uh, modern Russian conservatives and, and their, their Liberal uh, counterparts who would look more to the West rather than say that Russia is a distinct entity.
1: Let's focus in on that that notion of organic change. You mentioned it uh, at the beginning of our discussion, but I'd like to return to it because I think it's very central uh, to the very distinct Russian type of conservatism. Can you talk a little bit more about the this idea of change and reform has to be organic and and uh, Reflect that in nature and this idea of Leontov's flowering complexity. Uh, this is very much a theme that, that moves through your book very very beautifully, and, and you develop it really well, I thought.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you can see this beginning in, in some of the, what you might call the very early texts of Russian conservatism. So I think the first text I will really talk about is uh, Admiral Shishkov's book on uh, the Russian language, which was published in, in 1803. And, Shishkov was very concerned that although Russia was a a great power, it didn't have a a great literature. You know, Pushkin, Dostoevsky, these people didn't exist yet. So how would you create a great literature? And there was at the time the so-called new style um, of people like Karamzin, who were essentially um, adopting forms um, taken from Western Europe, particularly France, and tended to intersperse their writing with a lot of Gallicisms. And Shishkov said, no, we shouldn't do it that way. We should construct our literary language on our Slavic roots and, and use, you know, words from you know, Old Church Slavonic and so on, rather than from French. Now, in the end, he lost to his battle, but I think it gives you an indication of what organic change is. So it's not a it's not a reactionary thing. Shishkov wasn't trying to say let's not have a literature and let's not advance. He was saying no, we, we want to move forward, we want to create, but we wanted to create it, you know, in ways which are founded on what we have rather than taken uh, from abroad. Now, when you move forward in time to, for instance, Lyonchev, you have this idea which is that everyone is different. So the, the conservative idea is that you know, Russia is different, the West is different. And some of that, takes this even further, and this derives also from Nikolai Danonevsky, who's writing roughly at the same time. You know, every, everybody is different. So the world is not everyone moving. Towards some common future. This is the way sort of even today, Western liberals would view this, you know, we're all moving like in Francis Fukuyama's world towards the ends of history, it's like there's a common future for us all. Whereas Leontief would say, no, you know, the world is divided up in, into discrete civilizations, each of which moves in its own direction, and, and that is right and, and, and that is good. And this diversity is much better than homogeneity if, if if we're all moving in the same direction we're all merging into a common liberal future in the end we're all going to be the same <laughs> and what a boring world can be. Yeah. um you know that, that, you know and when you've got you know you've got, to different, you know you've got little social classes and we're just a bourgeois mass right and he probably if he was around today complain about modern architecture you go to a city and you know Korea and a city in Canada, and, you know, they look the same, it's the same skyscrapers everywhere. You know, what we don't want that. We want flowering complexity. You know, the, the, the more diversity, the better. And that's civilization, begins simple, it gets more and more complicated. And you know, it's that flowering complexity is, is the height of civilization to which you should aspire. And that means you need to resist, you know, these homogenizing effects of liberalism and internationalism and cosmopolitanism and and all the rest of it.
1: Now, was this um, movement in the 19th century, which of the rulers, if any, um, found these ideas compelling and which of them, to a certain extent, rejected them?
2: None of them found it compelling. I think you need to find, you need to draw a very clear distinction between the conservatism of the Russian state and the conservatism of Political philosophers, because they're, they're not the same. They're not, they're not they're the not same at all. So, you know, the prime conservative uh, ruler of the nineteenth century would be Nicholas the First. But Nicholas the First, you know, did not allow the Slavophiles to publish. Since it it, it did You know, they were suppressed, and he denounced very heavily the pan slavs and said, you know, we this idea that Russia has some holy mission, you know, that's rubbish. We don't, you know. We just want to keep things stable. So the conservatism of the Russian state is, is about the interests of the state and its stability and, and gradual progress and things like that. Whereas when you get into like fancy ideas of geopolitics and pan-Slavism and Eurasianism uh, and all these things, the, the Russian state has generally rejected them because they're, they're actually quite rather conservative because they're founded on organic change. They're often actually quite radical and that's not really what the Russian state wants. Right.
1: Um, but but some of these conservatives find their way into government um, service, such as uh, I think a, a great example is Pyotr Stalipin, um, who seems to be able to to balance the, the intense conservatism with this idea for sweeping reform within the state and, and his famous uh, quote that he wants great upheavals, he wants we want a great Russia. Is this a dilemma for the conservatives, such as Stalipin?
2: Yes, it's very difficult. And Stalipin you know, was trying to square of a circle in many ways, and and he ultimately failed, um, in part because he didn't really have the backing of the Tsar, Nicholas II, and didn't have the backing even of most conservatives at the time. So the conservatives in in the State Duma, which had been created um, in the 1905 revolution, they, they, for the most part, didn't support him either, and the radicals didn't support him. So he was trying to sort of do radical change combined with um, you know, conservatism of, of political structures and so on, but people didn't want it. It, it, it was like you know, some people wanted one part of it, but not the other, and, and other people wanted the other, but not the first part, and, and you couldn't get agreement on, on all these things. And, and uh, I mean, that's the real problem Russian conservatives have had is that um, their ideas have, have generally not been accepted by Russia's political rulers or, or by most, in fact, of, of, of the Russian elite.
1: Right, um, and and then after after Stalin and Nicholas, uh, this whole group moves abroad um, after the revolution. You mentioned them at the beginning, including uh, Ivan Ilin, who's found his way into Putin's uh, favor. Tell us a little bit about this movement, because I, I think it's not very well represented in in modern history uh, textbooks. But but your book makes the argument that these are really important contributors to the movement, and. Also, I'd I'd be interested in your thoughts on why they've uh, enjoyed such a popular resurgence with Russian uh, leaders today. Sort of fascinating.
2: Yes, well, clearly it was was difficult in particularly early Soviet times when it was extremely radical to to talk of any sort of conservative philosophy. So if you're going to find conservative philosophers in Geneva, you pretty much have to look into emigration. And, of course, there was this famous occasion where where Lenin shoved a couple of hundred philosophers on a boat and um, in 1922 and, and exiled them out of a country on the so called Philosopher's Steamer. And there was people like Berdyaev and Ilyin and who were on that. So essentially, the, the intellectual center of Russia moves in 1920 or so from Moscow or St. Petersburg into exile to, to, to Berlin and, and Paris and, and, and other places. So if you're looking for ideas, new ideas, um, you have to look to emigration, and, and some of these ideas, of course, are extremely influential. Particularly, uh, for instance, Eurasianism uh, from some 1921 onwards. But that's that's not the only thing. I mean, nowadays uh, Russians, you know, they're looking they're looking for inspiration somewhere. They're looking for ideas, and so they can't really very easily look at the Soviet period, particularly um, because there weren't so many novel ideas coming out of there, but also because the Soviet period is kind of discredited. So you're looking for something non-Soviet. So where, where are you going to look? Well, immigration isn't an obvious place to look. And you have people like Ilian and Berkhaev and, and the Eurasians and, and various others, and they provide a very useful um, source of, of, of a political uh, and moral philosophy.
1: It was interesting to me reading your book because... Um... I think many, many works about Russian history silo these eras. Um, You know, we have the pre-revolutionary period, one silo, post-revolutionary period, Soviet era, another silo. But you follow these threads through the rules of of Lenin and Stalin and right to the present day, and it seems to be a continuum. And I wondered if you would walk us through the notion of how conservatism changes from 1917 until after, say, the Second
2: World War. Yeah, you raise a very interesting question there as to... what is russian history of course russian conservatives in the modern era have this problem of like they're thinking about what is organic change do we do we include the soviet period in it or not do we include the immigration in it you know or not and and i think that the the, the general consensus is that you you have to take this as all being part of the the common thread of russian history right so that the russian history doesn't stop in in 1917 It, it it continues inside the Soviet Union, but also in emigration, and that the emigration needs to be brought back into the fold. But then you also have to consider what happened in the Soviet Union as part of your heritage as well, because, because it is. And it's not necessarily, you might reject most of it, but nevertheless, you, you, there might be elements there which you, you can't deny are, are important in, in constructing what you are and, and what you have become, and which might even be some, some good things you might be able to, to latch onto. Now, in terms of conservative, it's not possible before 1945 to speak of a conservative philosopher in, in the Soviet Union. That's just not It's just not feasible. It's not really until the 1950s, 60s that you begin to get people who you could start saying, oh, Russian conservatives once again. But what you do get is what I described in the book as sort of proto-conservatism creeping back in. Because the Soviet period, in particular, of course, the Stalin era was a period of extremely dramatic, radical change. And it's inevitable that when you have radical change, that you're going to have some sort of backlash to it. Because that radical change is going to create all sorts of uh, social and and, and other problems, which you're then going to have to deal with. And from the point of view of the state, you're going to start thinking after a while, we know we need to slow down, we we need to... We need to you know perhaps stabilize things and you start then to value stability and gradualness over radicalness uh, and you can see this in issues such as you know sort of family policy for instance which begins as extremely radical um immediately after the revolution but turns more conservative in the 1930s uh, due to huge problems of, of, of um you know um, homeless children for instance um which the state has to deal with, and it starts thinking, well, you know, maybe the nuclear family isn't isn't such a bad idea after all, and, and so you, you get a you get a turn away from some of the more radical stuff um, towards some um, you know more traditional values, and you get a restoration also of of, of uh, Russian nationalism that begins to come in, particularly of course with the Second World War, and then with that you get a restoration of tsarist symbology and the great generals and czars of the past right and and that's not yet a conservative philosophy but it's creating the grounds on which some sort of conservative philosophy can then begin to be constructed in the later soviet period and by the 1950s and 60s you're beginning to get people who are um you know overtly russian nationalists and start appealing to the, the traditions and uh, and the history and, and the culture and religion of the imperial period, and that's taking place even within the Soviet Union. So, therefore, it, it is in a way a, a, a continual. Thing.
1: How do the ethnic uh, nationalities within the Soviet Empire uh, relate to to this return to tsarist uh, ideals? Well, the. Issue. I guess what I'm asking is, where, where, do the, where do the Russian conservatives during this era, what do they think of the ethnic, uh, sort of multinational aspect of the Soviet empire?
2: Well, there's various, um, differences on this, as always have been. So if we go back to our definition of Russian conservatism as a being about organic change, you need to decide what is organic. So a, a central issue for Russian conservatives from the very beginning has been defining the Russian nation. And so, so conservatives have put a lot of effort into saying, you know, what is Russia? What does it mean to be Russian? In fact, in many ways, you might say Russian conservatism have been the primary intellectual drivers of, of discussions of Russian national identity. But they don't all agree on it. There are various different ideas on what, what, is, what is Russian. And on the one hand, you have ethno-Russian nationalists. On the other hand, you have uh, the state which has tended to view Russian as very much in terms of the state. You're you're Russian because there's a Russian state defined either by the Romanov dynasty or by the Communist Party or later on by by the by the by the presidency or whatever, right? Um, and then you have people who view Russia as a multinational, multi-confessional being, and, and that becomes particularly um, dominant in, in Eurasian thought. So these are very, very different ideas and when you get into the later Soviet period, from the '60s onwards, you have all of these ideas um, existing side by side and competing with one another. So you get, for instance, the uh, you know the village prose authors who are uh, Valentin Rasputin and Salo and others who, who are um, one might say clearly you know Russian nationalists. And then you get you know a painter like Glazunov, who's clearly a, a Russian ethno-nationalist. Um, and also a very strong believer in in, in your orthodoxy as being the the center of of Russian nationalism. But then you get a guy like Gunnyov, who is very much a believer that uh, the Soviet Union is is a multi-ethnic civilization, right? Um, uh, A super ethnos, as as he called it, where the the Russian people are part of it, community with the steppe peoples, you know, the, the Kazakhs and, and, and so on, right? So very different interpretations of what it is to be Russian existing side by side, and this is getting hashed out in, in, in scholarly articles and, and, and in the press and so on.
1: And I wonder, um, just building on top of of that idea, throughout, throughout the book I'm conscious um, that there is a real urgency for the conservatives to distill or define uh what russia's individual and unique identity is we've discussed you know what that might might look like but what how do you account for the urgency what is so important um or so elusive about this this quest
2: well it's important because if the foundation of your philosophy is that you need to develop in a way which is affects your own distinct identity, you have to determine what that distinct identity is. And that's all been a severe problem for Russian conservatives, particularly because Russian conservatives have tended to be highly Westernized, highly educated people from the the upper strata of society, right? So um, if you look at these Russian conservatives, many of them would have traveled to the West, they would have spoken multiple European languages, they... um, have studied particularly German philosophy um that they're, you know in many ways very western people but they have a sense that you know somehow yeah, yeah we're west but we're different somehow and they? they have to you know it creates a certain sort of identity crisis for them that's how one scholar um talks about this you know going back to a slava part but it's essentially an identity crisis And so they have to think about what it is, and and, and different solutions are are proposed. I mean, orthodoxy is the obvious choice for for most Russian conservatives. If you want to to find what differentiates Russia from Western Europe, it is the fact that Russia is an orthodox country, not a Catholic one. So so that, that becomes a central point.
1: Let's let's dive into to the Russian Orthodox Church because that is another uh, ribbon throughout uh, the the entire movement and the history. Um, why is why is Orthodoxy so important?
2: Well, Orthodoxy is important precisely because these you know Russian conservative thinkers are, are trained in in Western rationalism and Western philosophy. And they need something which differentiates themselves. And and orthodoxy is is, is the obvious choice for them. And orthodoxy provides a a, a means of of trying to work out what is distinct about Russian civilization. And so you'll see orthodox thought becomes very important um, uh, throughout uh, pretty much all Russian um, um, conservative thought. But it's actually... Um, it dates back beyond that. It, it, um, Gary Hamburg wrote a book on Russian political philosophy from like sort of 1500 to 1800, recently in some 900 page, massive tome. Uh, and what he says in this is that Russian political philosophy was always you know, highly religious uh, back in the Middle Ages. It was extremely you know, based on um, on Russian orthodoxy. And then the enlightenment comes on and it begins to influence Uh, Russian philosophy and and rational modes of thought come in, but they never entirely displace orthodoxy. So what happens is Russian political thought ends up being a sort of combination of of Western rationalism with, you know, orthodox faith. Uh, And I think that remains true throughout the 19th century and possibly uh, even beyond. It's interesting if there's... um. A History of Russian Philosophy by, I think it's Leslie Chamberlain, and it, she begins by talking about some meeting she had with Isaiah Berlin. Berlin complains that you know, the problem with Russian philosophy it was never rational, which is, I think is like, he sort of rather way of saying, well, you know, they believed in God. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I somehow he didn't want to recognise that as being you know legitimate. But, but, I mean, that is essentially that is essentially it, you know, the, 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 the faith has always been a fundamental part of, of, of Russian political faith.
1: And what aspect of the faith, I mean, what makes Russian Orthodoxy different from uh, Roman Catholicism and that it can play this kind of role uh, in, in kind of thwa- thwacking away all these Enlightenment ideas in a way that doesn't happen in Germany or France?
2: Okay, well, I mean, Russian Orthodoxy itself is founded on tradition, right? So, so, um there's like one author I mentioned Berenchinov, who was a, a a Russian bishop in the sort of mid-19th century, and, and and he wrote in one of his books that you can't just sit down and, and read the Bible. Because if you do that, you're gonna make all sorts of mistakes. Because you know, this Bible was written in a specific, you know, historical context and in the context of previous writings, and a whole you know theological tradition. So you're going to completely misunderstand if you just read it literally, especially in translation, right? You, Before you, you sit down and read it, you, you've got to read what you know the, the Holy Fathers have said about it and how they've interpreted it. And you put it within that context. And then that's when you you, you, you you get to know the truth. So the truth is not just your reason, right? It's It's your reason allied to tradition and what people have said in the past and how it's been interpreted in the past. And it's only through tradition that you can really see truth. So orthodoxy in this way naturally lends itself uh, towards a, a, you might say, traditionalist conservative uh, mode of thinking.
1: I see. Um, Another theme that that is uh, pervasive throughout the book is that the conservatives support the notion of an autocratic government. And I wondered, uh, what about autocracy is so appealing to them?
2: Well, autocracy needs to be Understood properly, so the word autocracy, I mean in Greek, just means rule by one person, right? And 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 the Russian word means exactly the same in essence. So what it doesn't say that that phrase is, you know, how much power that person should have, what what he should have power over. So autocracy, literally defined, is, is simply about the locus of power. It's about where power is, but it's not about. How power operates or how much power there is or what the limits of power are. So autocracy in Russian conservative thought is not the same as unlimited power or unrestrained power or let alone totalitarianism or or anything like that. It it is simply saying that insofar as you know there is state authority, it should be highly centralized. Um, But in Russian conservative thought at the same time, it, it should also be highly limited. So you know the Slavophiles, for instance, were very clear on this. But, but you know there are certain things which the state should do, such as defence of the realm, and that should be in the hands of one person, the Tsar, and everyone should let him be, and he should do it by himself, and no one should interfere. But that doesn't mean that the Tsar should interfere in you know our daily life. You know what we do back home, and what we wear, and what we cook, and, what we speak and how we run our lives, those are entirely our own affairs. So the principle, which uh, uh, Konstantin Tarkov said, was one of mutual non-interference. You know, we don't interfere in the state. The state doesn't interfere with us. Right? So this is, a, this is a model of limited governance. And I think that's something which is not very often understood because people naturally think of Russia autocracy, sort of dictatorship, totalitarianism, or whatever. But that's not how Russian conservatives view it.
1: And what about today? I mean, I th- I, when you're you're in your final sh- chapter about post-Soviet Russia, uh, that's where your book, I think, stops being a history book and starts being a current affairs book because there's so much uh, in that chapter that is relevant to our relationship with Russia now uh, and the way Russia itself is changing. Uh, how do modern conservatives in Russia view the role of the state? What is its responsibility towards the people? And how is that different from a Western interpretation?
2: Again, I, mean, I wouldn't say there's consensus among uh, Russian conservatives on this. There's what we might call a sort of more democratic fringe um, of, of Russian conservatives who, who believe that you know, there really is no alternative to um, representative uh, institutions. Um, And there are others who who, uh, have a more um, autocratic um, model of things. Um, On the whole, they tend to view um, the state in somewhat sort of paternalistic grounds that, uh, and this dates back not just to the czarist period, I think it's also a sort of hangover from the the Soviet period, that the the state has an obligation to to look after the the social welfare um, of the community and of the people. And the great criticisms they would make of the modern modern Russian state is that it doesn't do a very good job of this, and um, they they would complain that the Russian state is is neoliberal, and this is the kind of criticism which think mean many people in the West might struggle to to understand. But from the point of view of Russian conservatives, the Russian state is, is liberal, largely um, because of its economic policies and. Um, the way that it had initially privatized in, in the 1980s but is now you know essentially allowing um a, a very unequal distribution of wealth to continue on on the ground principles of you know we don 't interfere in all this and so on um whereas the, the Russian conservatives would tend to argue for a more interventionist policy that they um tend to be economically and socially somewhat left wing by uh, Western standards, so the predominant tendency among not state conservatives, but but uh, you know intellectual conservatives would be what we call left conservatism. So that would mean that they would tend to believe in a more interventionist role for the state in the economy, or um in improved social welfare programs, um, and they would tend to be against um, globalization. Um, and so on and so forth. And they would tend to be for like um, protectionism and things like that.
1: And and nowadays, there is a very uh, hardy strain of anti-Western feeling, which in reading your book, I I get the sense is is centuries old. Um, During the great reforms of Alexander II, Askakov says that the West is inherently hostile uh, to Russia. Is the reverse true? Is Russia inherently hostile to the West?
2: Um, it's a complex dialectic of pro and anti-Western views. I mean, going back to what I said almost at the beginning of the talk, the Russian patriotism doesn't mean that you have to be hostile to the West. It does mean that you don't want to just transplant Western models onto Russia. But it doesn't mean you don't think Western models don't work well in the West. You can you can actually admire them very greatly. So if we go back to uh, Ivan Yelin for instance, some um, he, you know, wrote this piece called Against Russia, where he, he describes in great detail why Russia is different from the West and why he says, you know, the West is just inherently hostile to us. You know, they, they, they dislike us, they fear us, so on and so forth. At the same time, though, you know, this was, this was a guy who, who, when he was an exile in Switzerland, wrote all sorts of things saying, you know, how great Swiss democracy was. Because, you know, for Switzerland, it's great you know, was So, so <laughs> it doesn't it, it's just not in Russia, right? So um you don't have to be you don't have to be anti Western. Okay? You just need to be anti Westernisation and so on. Now this then leads to some people of course are quite anti Western though if you push them, they'll they'll probably deny it. So I uh, I met Dugin as part of the, the search for this book and um, you can find online on, on my blog the, the interview I did with Alexander Dugan and he denies totally being anti-Western. He says, you know, he loves the West. Or at least he loves the West until 1980 is what he says. Right. Around about 1980 it all went wrong and you became post-modernist and morally relativist and it all it all all collapsed. But you know, he says, I love the you know Western culture, I speak Western languages, I read Western literature, you know, and I love the West. I just think you've gone nuts. And You'll we'll, we'll, we'll get other uh, Russians who say this. I met a guy, um, Mikhail Remizov, again. He, he's he's um, uh, is a Eurasianist. So Remizov is, is a Russian, ethno-Russian nationalist, right? And he's very critical of the Russian state for you know, not, not standing up for the Russian people, right? Um, and for allowing all this immigration from Central Asia and so on. Um, but, you know, uh, Remizov also says, you know, we're not, we're not anti-West, we're anti-postmodernist. Right, uh, and the West was fine until postmodernism came along. So, what we're in favour of is Europe as it was until around 1980. Right, so so it's a similar uh, a similar sort of line. So, you will get some people saying, you know, the West is up against the West is, is is our enemy. We must fight the West. We must push back against the West. But then you'll also get conservatives who say, not all the West. You know, we we need to ally with elements within the West, and the struggle, the real struggle is not between Russia and the West, it's between these post-modern, progressive, ultra-liberals and conservatives, And, and those are divisions which straddle across frontiers, right? And so, you know, we are allies with the conservatives in Europe. Okay, against a common enemy. So, so there's, there's a couple of ways of looking.
1: Who are the major conservative uh, voices in Russia today? Without, without getting too much into the weeds, uh, just for listeners who, who are kind of following current events, who do you see as, as a bright star?
2: Um, well, i mean, clearly, you know, there is, again, I like to draw a differentiation between you know, official state conservatism and intellectual conservatism, right? So clearly, you know, Putin is in many ways a, a, a conservative but he's he's a classic state conservative not not a intellectual conservative right um you know and he 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 strongly um pushes forward these ideas of of stability that word stability is continually popping up uh, in his speeches so he's giving a, a certain type of intellectual um well not intellectual of, of conservative you know, a world view um, but it 's not a fully worked out conservative ideology and it 's rather at odds with um what many conservative intellectuals think um, who often regard him actually as, as far too liberal um, so if you're then going away from the, the state and you 're talking about intellectuals then there there are several several trends i mean there's um, clearly there's a Eurasianist trend which is often associated with uh, alexander dugin um Dugin is not, I'd say, as important as people make him out to be. He's certainly not Putin's brain. He has, you know, pretty much zero influence on, on, on state policy. Nonetheless, um, he does come up with a lot of, you know, interesting ideas, right? So I, I think that you, you can't dismiss him as, you know, intellectually unimportant. So I think certainly from from that Eurasianist uh, 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 framework, um, that's important. Though. More often quoted in, in Russian academic literature um, is Alexander Panarin, who, who died uh, a few years ago. So, but he, he'd be much more quoted, actually, in, in academic literature than, than Dugin would um, from that sort of perspective. Then you would have um, ethno-Russian uh, nationalists, right? Um, people who, so, who say, no, you know, Russia is not a, um, is not a a multinational, multi-confessional state, post collapse of the Soviet Union, 85% of the population of the Russian Federation are Russians, okay? And therefore, we have an opportunity now to, to create a truly Russian state, uh, and, and we should do that. And, and uh, an example of that would be um, Mikhail Udemizov, who, who I mentioned earlier, um, in, in the sort of popular press and so on, you, you occasionally get like people like um, Yegor Homogorov, who, who, who tends to uh get a lot of publicity um again i think you, you shouldn't over exaggerate um the influence um of any of these intellectuals it's not it, it, it's very it tends to be very much limited to to intellectual circles there's orthodox conservatism it obviously um um important um you know clearly then you you have to listen um to what the Patriarch Kirill says, um, and to um, Metropolitan Hilarion as well, um, would be important figures. Um, there's uh, Shipcroft, who works with the Russian Orthodox Church as well, who, who um, proposes sort of ideas of left conservatism. And then um, in the more sort of moderate conservative wing, um, there's people like uh, Boris Mejure, for instance, and he, he's a... Sort of disciple of um, Vadim Simbirsky, who died a few years ago, and could be seen as a proponent of a more isolationist um, trend in Russian conservative thought. So, whereas someone like Dugin is very much of the, of the view that Russia is in a, you know, life or death struggle with uh, the Anglo-Saxon powers uh, and must strike back and can't just sit back and take it, but actually has to push back. Um, which, you know, and the more isolationist conservatives would say, "No, you know we should just cut ourselves off from this uh, and you know retreat into island Russia, as Szynski said it and, uh, and think about our own internal development um and that builds also on Solzhenitsyn's ideas as well um so those are some of trends you might see nowadays
1: and how do you think this will continue, or do you think we're due a a sort of a liberal thaw or any Any predictions as to what we'll see in the next five years?
2: I hate to predict because it's uh, inevitably goes wrong and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, research, research into academic prediction shows that we get it right fifty percent of the time, in other words, you know um, exactly what a random monkey would do but um i don't, I don't see in the immediate future um, hope for liberalism as a political force you know, I' that Liberal idea. We're not infiltrating Russian society in many ways, because I think, put in many ways, like they are. But as a political force, liberalism is discredited and it's badly associated with what happened in the 1990s. And it's pretty much a kiss of death for anyone to actually call themselves a liberal. And and really, really liberal um, parties and political organisations, you know, such as Yabloko and so on, really have pretty much no support. Uh, and are not viewed very positively. They're also seen as being very out of touch with ordinary people.
1: Is that, is that within, I mean, it seemed to me in a way that perhaps the, the, the same thing that happened in 1918 has happened a bit in the last five years, that the liberal people have moved away. Uh, have have left uh, the country and 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 perhaps that the center of that school of thought is is not located within the geographic confines of russia anymore is that well i mean there's still there's still
2: a lot of what you might call liberal people in in moscow st petersburg um but i think political ideology ideology generally in russia is not very powerful and that's as true of conservatism as it is liberalism these russian conservatives i just mentioned they do not consider that the Russian state is very sympathetic to them, and they certainly don't feel that they have any real influence on what the state does. Um, and on the whole, the perception is that the state actually is rather hostile to um, Russian conservatives uh, as a, as philosophers and, and, and as a, as a group in society. So, like Mejure, for instance, I mentioned, he used to edit the op-ed page of Izvestia until. Sometime in, I think, 2015, he was fired and ran all the conservatives he used to get to write op-eds. You know, they weren't allowed to write op-eds anymore because oh, a decision had been made somewhere that we don't need these conservatives anymore. Um, so I think the real situation you have in Russia is a very non-ideological one. So it's not just liberalism. It's, it's liberalism, conservatism, socialism. All, all the various isms um, are not popular because the Russian constitution bans any official ideology. And I think ideology is associated with, with bad things because of the Soviet era uh, and the Russian state itself wants to maintain its flexibility, its ability to, to 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 change tack if it needs to. It doesn't want to be bound by any um, one particular ideology. But at the same time, you know, it's willing to listen to, to all of them. So like political scientists like Richard Sackler, for instance, would, would describe, you know, the, the system of the Russian state as one in which all these groups, you know, liberals, conservatives, Eurasianists so on, they all they all to some degree have the ear of the president, right? And and then he sort of balances a little bit between them all. But the idea that any particular ism is going to like, become dominant seems very unlikely. Mm.
1: I wonder if um, there was anything in your what has to have been extensive research writing this book that you stumbled across that's really surprised you
2: about this? I mean, yeah, I could say one sort of general thing and one, one specific thing. I mean, generally, what I wasn't expecting was the extent to which you know, intellectual philosophical conservatism has been an oppositional phenomenon because one does tend to think of you know, the Russian state as historically a, a conservative Institution, but as I've said, I think a couple of times in this interview, actually, generally, it, it, it has not liked or appreciated the work of the conservative philosophers. And conservative philosophers have almost always, with our two exceptions, I mean, um, considered themselves to be outside of power and, and in loyal opposition to it. So, not, not actually, you know, it's always a loyal opposition, but it, but it's largely, you know, they've largely been critical of the policies pursued by their government. Uh, specific that surprised me was some of the stuff I read um, about some of the Brezhnev era. And and I was really taken aback by some of the things people were able to get away with. Uh, In in the 1960s, for instance, I quote an article by uh, Solit which I think it's called something like A Visit to the Russian Museum, in which he he says things like, you know, why have we got all these towns named after Kirov and Kirov Street and Kirov Factory and Kirov District? Away with all of it, you know. Why is Nizhny Novgorod called Gorky? It's Nizhny Novgorod. it always be Nizhny Novgorod. All these Soviet names—they should all be abolished. We should go back to the old name. And I—I read this, My i was gobsmacked that he could write this in in Brezhnev's Russia and and get away with it, but he did. Um, and something like that kind of makes you I want to study the period a little bit more, maybe like rethink. Well, you know, what were the limits of um. Free board and speech in, in Soviet Russia. Maybe it's not quite, you know, what we thought it was. Um, I, I found that very stuff.
1: There seems to have been a lot more nuance than than you would expect just going in, um, and I think your book um, your book reflects that really well um, in each of the eras. And, and I like the way you broke down um, between the political, the cultural, and the socio economic, because in each era the these three different aspects are are often developing in very different ways from one another and um, sometimes even in opposition to each other, I think.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think um, nuance is very important because I've, sadly I think in a lot of writing about Russia nowadays you have very little. You know? That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's all very, very black and white. Uh, and it's not, it's not often understood that um, often maybe paradoxical or contradictory things can go together, but you can be you know, a conservative, even reactionary in one respect, and really very liberal or radical uh, in, in another, that your economic views might be, you know, very liberal, while your political views are, are very conservative, or vice versa. And there are all sorts of combinations going on which need to be understood if you have a properly nuanced understanding of this. Subject. That's
1: right. Now, will you follow this up with a, with a magisterial work on, on Russian liberalism?
2: But that actually. Obviously, you should say that. that is actually the plan. Um, I have two projects. Oh wow!
1: Okay, great. <laughs> I
2: have two projects in mind. The first that will be uh, is a book on, on Russian liberalism, which I hope to write over the next uh, two three years, and then I'm um, hoping to do a biography of uh, Emperor Alexander the uh, Third. The third. The third yeah.
1: Excellent. There's not enough about Alexander the Third for sure. Uh, that'll be marvelous. Well, I hope we can invite you back, Professor Robinson, when you when you complete those books. And I think you have another book out on um, Afghanistan
2: that's pretty recent. Yeah. So my two most recent books were I did a history of um, Soviet economic assistance to Afghanistan. So that sort of looked at the things the Soviets built in Afghanistan, not the things that they they blew up. Um, I think that's called Aiding Afghanistan, I seem to remember. And then I, in 2013, I, I published a biography of Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, Jr.
1: Which is a wonderful study. I, I have a copy of it, and it's fantastic.
2: Okay, yeah. So he was supreme commander of the Russian army in the First World War. So, so that's to my, my last two projects before this.
1: Excellent. And where can people find out more about you, your work, and get a copy of Russian conservatism?
2: Um, well, you can all look at my blog, which is uh, at Irrationality dot wordpress. dot com i r r u s s i a n a l i t y. dot wordpress. dot com and I write on that every two to three times a, a week. Um, if you want to get a copy of the book, I mean it's available on, on Amazon or um, at the website of Cornell University Press. Or if you want to email me at paul. robinson at uro. I can even send you a flyer where I can give you thirty percent off. Fantastic.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, Professor Robinson. This has been a marvelous uh, and wide-ranging discussion on Russian conservatism. Uh, I've been speaking with Paul Robinson, professor of history of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa and the author of Russian Conservatism, out uh, this year by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. Thank you so much for being with us today. And tune in next time for another great interview with an author about his or her book. Bye now.